Good morning. For those that don't know, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm the executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. And it is my joy to be able to look at God's word with you this morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Acts 20, verses 1 to 16. We're really going to focus on a couple verses here. Um, but yeah, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Just taking a look here. Did anyone ever watch that, that show Lost? Anybody? Anyone get into Lost? No? Really? There's a few people? Yes. Now, Lost is a show that was really confusing. I really felt like, so the whole plot had been, okay, there's people on a plane, they crash, they're on this island, weird things happen, they're trying to figure out how to get off, and they're trying to decipher what's going on around them. And I really felt like the writers of this show just said, you know what, let's just make things up as we go. Let's just make things up and don't even resolve things. There's fog that kills people, and then there's polar bears, and you never figure out why are there polar bears on this island, ever. You see them a couple times, they're in a cage, and you go, why are these things here? And you'll never find out, ever, ever. Just weird, weird. And sometimes when I look at scripture and I read uh, some of the accounts that we have in the Bible, I think to myself, that's eh, a little weird. That's a, that's a little weird to me. Like, why is it that uh, uh, Zipporah took the child's foreskin and put it on Moses' foot? I'm like, I don't know. That's just weird to me. Then there's, then there's when, you know, Jesus is, is healing, and in one of the instances, he, like, picks up some dirt, spits on it, makes mud, puts it on the dude's eyes. It's like, brother, go wash your face. And I'm like, why did you make mud and put it on his eyes? Like, I'm just trying to understand what's going on. But then there's other things, like, it's just more counterintuitive. It goes against, or even counterculture kind of goes against what, what we typically think. Like, when Jesus says, hey, if you want to become rich, you must first become poor. Or he who wants to gain their life must first lose it. And if you're going to live this new life, you must first be born again. There are things that, that we read in scripture that can sometimes sort of be, seem weird or out of place or maybe a little confusing. But yet in the great picture of scripture, we see it all has a purpose and a place because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And as we look at our passage today, we see this, this almost, this, this account that's like, why is this even here? Why are we even hitting upon this now? And it's in Acts chapter 20. And what I think, what I want us to get this morning, as we read through this, and I'm only going to, at the front end, just read a couple of verses, but we're going to go through the passage as we go. It's a longer passage. But what I'd like for us to see is this, that a transformed believer preaches a transforming gospel. One who has been transformed by the gospel in their own lives, personally, experientially, preaches this transforming gospel to a lost world around them. So reading then Acts 20, focusing on verses 9 and 10, say this. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep 
as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him into his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the gift that it is that we can, we can, we can read it, we can, we can study it. Uh, there's things that we're able to understand. There's other things that we have to wrestle and, and grapple with. But we know, Lord, that, that your word is perfect and true. And Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would be opening our eyes opening our ears and our hearts to, to receive your word, that you would encourage us where, where we ought to be encouraged and you would compel and convict us where we ought to be compelled and convicted. Pray, Father, that as we go through this, that we would glorify you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So a transformed believer preaches a transforming gospel. And so we're looking here in Acts 20. We'll go ahead and start at verse 1 and kind of work our way through this. And it says there in verse 1, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So let's stop there. We got here Paul on his encouragement tour. He's going around and he's going to the churches and and the regions, places that he's planted, uh, communities that he knows of, and he's encouraging them with the gospel. He's encouraging them to press on. He's encouraging them to stay true. And I mean, and you got to think, he had been influenced himself by his own mentor, his own person, uh, that took care of him, Barnabas, who was the son of encouragement. And so here now, Paul exhibits that in his ministry, where he goes and he starts to encourage these churches in these regions. And it goes, verse 3, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Uh, so Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians... Aristocartus, or Carcus, and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So now, now we see Luke. You know, Luke has, is the writer of this. He was also the writer of the gospel. And he had been compiling these accounts. He had been going and talking to first-hand witnesses, second-hand witnesses. He had went and was gathering this information. He was compiling it together for these accounts so that he writes it to Theophanes uh, so that he would then be encouraged and strengthened in his own faith. And so now we see this change here. We see the switch where now Luke is not only just reporting on, on what he's heard from others, from others' accounts, but now he's reporting on, hey, I was there when he met us. They went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So now Luke the physician is here. He is a part of this. It's not just, hey, secondhand, it's firsthand knowledge for him. And he recounts this. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, the Passover, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So he's part of this. Now we get uh, uh, verse 7. But first, when they're here in Troas, 
just to give a bit, bit more context. So we know it's about springtime because Passover has just happened. So it's springtime. They go to Troas, which is in the northwest region of modern-day Turkey. And so they're there, and, it's, it, and even though it's springtime, it can be sometimes a bit colder at night, right? The temperatures drop in that region. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. So they get together, and it says, hey, they gather together on the first day of the week. Here we have one of the earlier accounts of Christians now setting themselves apart from Jews, where for the Jews, that they would have Sabbath on Saturday. So they'd work Sunday through Thursday. Friday was the day of preparation. And then Saturday, they would have Sabbath, right? Here, though, we see on the first day of the week where they gathered on the Lord's day, became Sunday. Why? Because that was the day that the Lord, the Lord rose from the dead. And so they, they gathered together because this is an important day for them. This is an important time for them. They understand that on the Lord's day, we must gather together to celebrate and remember what the Lord has done. And so they make that change and they gather together on Sunday, the Lord's day. And on this, they have two main priorities. The breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and the teaching of God's word. These are crucial and critical as we come together today as believers. If you notice, even with here at Redeemer, we allocate quite a bit of time to God's word. Not just the, the preaching and the teaching and the proclaiming of God's word, but, but we sing God's word. We pray God's word. We, we disciple our children in God's word. We gather together as believers on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, and we, we partake in the Lord's Supper and we teach God's word. We strip it down to this is what we have commanded to us in Scripture we ought to do together. I mean, uh, this is called the, the regulative principle uh, of worship, that, that we do the things that are commanded in Scripture, and everything else, we just, it's not a priority for us here. I mean, the 1689, the Second London Baptist Confession in chapter 22 writes this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. He himself has given us this. And so limited by his own revealed will, that we may not be, uh, that, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And so we focus on prayer, worship, discipleship of our kids, the teaching of God's word, the Lord's Supper. And it says, Paul was talking for hours. Hours. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. So here now, Paul's there, and Paul's there. He's not leaving. He's got himself an audience, and he feels compelled to proclaim God's word to them. And he goes hours 
and hours and hours into, into the night. It says up until till midnight. And we struggle at 40 minutes. But again, it's, it's midnight, it's springtime, so it gets a bit colder. Everyone's gathered together in this room, listening. So it gets dark, so they bring out lamps so that they could see, but also because of the heat, warmth, right? To give off a bit of warmth. So you got all this body heat, you got all these candles that are being lit. It's, it's dimly lit, and it's midnight, and people have been there for a long, long time. And now we introduce Eutychus. Now let me first say this. Eutychus gets a bad rap in sermons. He gets a bad, bad rap. Typically it's, don't be Eutychus. Don't be like him. And he goes, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Oftentimes, sometimes preachers will use this as kind of a, as a hammer, as sort of a, stay awake, I see you, what's going on here? Don't be like Eutychus, because you're going to miss out, or even worse, dead. <laughs> but I look at Eutychus, and I look at, I, 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 people talk about, don't be like him. But I mean, hours. Uh, and listen, I preach here, I'm here on, at the 9 a.m., and I'm here at the 11, and trust me, I see people starting to struggle around 25 to 30 minute mark. And you can see it, and I, so I understand, from a young man's perspective here, here he is, hours, it's dark, dimly lit, it's warm, you're going to fall asleep. It does not matter how dynamic of a preacher you might have in Paul, because I highly doubt he's like smooth jazz up there. I, I see someone that, that is really passionate, full of zeal. But he gets a bad rap. But what about this? He showed up. He was there. Because I'll be honest, there are times in the winter when it's cold outside, and I'm wrapped up in my blanket, and that alarm goes off, and I think, just one more hour. Just one more hour. But he showed up. And not only when I say he showed up, because sometimes we just don't want to show up because we're tired or we're fatigued. Have you ever been at a moment in your faith as a believer where you felt so discouraged or defeated that all you could muster up the energy for is to just show up? Brothers and sisters, I've been there. And I know some of you that have been there or maybe are there where all I can do is show up and praise God for Eutychus for showing up and being there, prioritizing the assembly itself, prioritizing uh, uh, being with God's people and hearing God's word. And so for some of us, we just, we, all, all we can muster up the energy for is to just be here in the seats. And I want to encourage you, praise God for that. Because showing up gives you the opportunity to witness God at work. It's hard to see God at work when you are not here. And so showing up gives us that opportunity. And here we see, we have an opportunity to witness God's power on display using Eutychus. You know, how providential that his, na his name is Eutychus, which means fortunate. He's on this window ledge and he fell asleep, falls three stories, and he's pronounced dead fell down from the third store and was taken up dead. Now remember, Luke's there, the physician. Not that he fainted, 
Not that he passed out. Not that he's such a hard, deep sleeper that he fell three stories and yet maintained his sleep. No, he's pronounced dead. And so Paul jumps into action. And he went down, he bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be afraid, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's another way of saying they were overwhelmed with joy. They weren't just comforted a little. They were overwhelmed with this joy. So Paul jumps into action, and what does he do after that? Continues with the service. Paul is not one to let a good object lesson go by. So Eutychus is there. He falls. He dies. He's brought back to life. And even in his his weakness and his tired state, what, what we're able to see here is that a transformed believer preaches a transforming gospel because even with his weakness, his weakness was, uh, was used by God to display his power. So some, Eutychus was asleep. Some are asleep in their sin. They're dead in their sin. And for those, there is an opportunity for God's power to be on display in their lives as God's Holy Spirit works in their heart, calling them, drawing them to himself, taking a, a hard heart, a wicked heart, a heart that does not love God, a heart that is an enemy of God, and giving them this heart of flesh, one that longs for him, wants to be with him, seeks after him. But others are asleep in just complacency. We're professing to be believers. And I'm not talking about the weak Christian that is just struggling just to show up because they are going through trials, tribulations, and are exhausted and are weary. I'm talking about the arrogant, prideful believer that thinks they have it all together. And they're asleep in their complacency. And they need the power of God to revive them and their walk. What about you? Where do you see your own weaknesses in your faith? Where do you see your own weaknesses in your walk with God? Where are you potentially uh, asleep or complacent in your day-to-day? Again, not because you are weary and weak because you're going through trials and tribulations, but because we have taken for granted the mercy and grace of God in our lives and just have this mentality of, I've arrived, I've been raised here, I'm good to go. There's a difference there. It's a subtle difference, but it's a difference nonetheless. One is anticipating the grace and mercy of God. The other does not believe they need it. What about for you in your weakness or in your trials as you're going through your own seasons of tribulation and stress and weariness, whether it's, it's, it's in the home or, or in the workplace, with our friends or, or in our community. But our weakness is an opportunity to see God's power. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient for you, My power is made perfect in weakness. 
So we have this, it's this, it's this again, this kind of weird sort of counter-cultural, counter-intuitive moment here where to be made strong, to be made whole, I must be brought down low, I must be weak. Because it is only in that position and in that place do we understand our need for God's grace, mercy, our dependency upon his strength and on his spirit. But, even, but sometimes in the midst of these, these times, we start to hear these lies from the enemy. These lies about ourselves and about others. Because sometimes when I am weak, when I am weary, when I am in a season of despair, I, I start to hear and hear these thoughts and think these thoughts that, am I really a true Christian? Am I really a believer? How, how could I say that I'm a believer if I've, I've said these things, thought these things, done these things? Have I not positioned myself to be way outside of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God? Why would God, his perfect, holy, just God, forgive me, welcome me, hold me, soothe me, comfort me, raise me? And I begin to believe these things. You're not worth it. You're not trying hard enough. If only you did X, Y, and Z, would you then be well? Would you then be whole? And we start to believe these these lies that the enemy starts to tell us about ourselves. And then we start to believe the lies that he tells us about other people. Whether two ways where we compare ourselves to them. How could you not? How could you ever believe that you're a believer if you're not like them? Look at how, how great and powerful Paul is. Look at how God had utilized him. Or how is it that you think you're, you're raising your family right when you're not looking like this family, this beautiful family that seems to have it all together? I grew up uh, on Gray Street here in St. Charles, and I had this neighbor, and we're at the end there, and my family was not a cookie-cutter family. We had our issues. We had our struggles. And I remember always looking at this family next door. I don't want to say they moved to Tennessee. The sand camps. I remember seeing the sand camps, and he was a Wheaton cop, and I would look, and I'd be like, it was Mr. and Mrs. Sandcam and Ben and Maggie. They're two kids. And I was thinking, man, that, that family's perfect. That family's great. Why, can, why is my family not like them? They seem so loving, caring, forgiving. And you start to compare yourself to others. Or on the flip side, because of our arrogance, our complacency, because of our pride, we begin to look down upon others. Why are they not like me? How are they not further along? They're really immature in their walk, aren't they? Why are they not as committed to serving in the church or, or being at the church or, or being part of community? It's easy for us to start to begin to believe these lies that we hear from the enemy about ourselves and about others. And so we must be constantly reminded by the word of God that we have been made new in Christ. And we look to him, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that's where we get our assurance. That's where we get our confidence. That's where we can combat these lies of the enemy because we look and we say we are made in his image. We are made in the image of God. And that we are children of God. And that by that we have this, this right to call him Abba Father. That we are heirs to all this. 
That our identity, our identity is not in myself and in my faith, in how hard I work or how, how presentable I could come across or how perfect I could be. But my identity is in him and him alone, in his work, in his resurrection, in his death. And so when we have these, these moments of weakness, they're an opportunity to display God's power. And God will take that opportunity and he will turn tragedy to joy. And we see that here in Eutychus. You see, this text is not about staying awake in church. Stay awake. But it's not about staying awake in church. It's not here to be a bludgeon against you to say, how dare you be fatigued or tired and come to the Lord's house. No, this text is not about staying awake in church, but it is a reminder of the gospel's transformative power and purpose to raise the spiritually dead. That's what this is. And throughout scripture, we have these resurrection accounts. You've got two in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. You've got, you've got a number of them in the Gospels with Jesus raising them. In Acts chapter 9, you've got Peter himself that also displays God's power, uh, God's resurrecting powder, power. And then here in verse, in chapter 20, we see it on display in Eutychus. You see, all these accounts point to Jesus it points to Jesus' victory over sin and death. Where, one can, where he takes this tragedy and brings joy. And not just a little comfort, but overwhelming joy. And this power of God on display brings death to life. You see, the gospel is not moral behavior adjustments. Or, or another way of putting it is, it's not about behavior modification, but heart transformation. That's what the gospel is all about. And the gospel, then, is from death to life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, so some of us have been raised in the church, some of us have that privilege. Others of us came to faith later on in life. Both have been redeemed. And I think it's a little bit easier for me for someone that was not raised up in the church because it's easier for me to kind of be reminded and remember of my life before Christ. Do you remember being dead in your sins? I do. I can remember living like that, being a slave to the world hating the things of God, 
Can you remember that? Have you forgotten your salvation? Or in Revelation, as it talks about, have you forgotten your first love? Have you abandoned your first love? You see, for, for those, whether it be raised in the church or came to faith later, all of us need to hold on. We need to hold on to the joy of our salvation that we've been given and never forget. You know, the irony of those preachers that say, don't be like Eutychus, to me it's ironic because all of us are Eutychus. Each and every single one of us had been dead in our sins and needed the miraculous power of God for resurrection. Each and every single one of us. Eutychus was dead. He could not bring himself back to life. No morality, no good behavior, no setting some agenda and some routine and some ritual, no amount of serving within the church, no amount of giving within the church. Nothing he could do or you could do or I could do could have brought ourselves back to life. Nothing. Like Eutychus, we are down on the ground, dead, unable to save ourselves and to bring ourselves back to life. It was only by the power of God and God alone. That's it. So we rejoice. We should rejoice at our salvation. Every Sunday when we get to gather together on the Lord's day, as we proclaim him, as we remember his works and what he has done, as we're reminded in the elements right here, day, uh, Sunday after Sunday, we should rejoice at our salvation and carry that joy of our salvation because if it was not but for the grace of God, we'd be lying dead. It is only by his grace and mercy. That is not meant for us to, to feel down and out, but it should, it should bring about great joy. We should be relieved. We should be relieved that we have this gospel, this, this good news that we don't have to work hard enough, that we don't have to make ourselves well enough, that we don't have to clean ourselves, but that Jesus himself, that God himself came, put on flesh, that he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He lived according to the law's demands. And in that, we are credited that righteousness. But on the flip side, because we are sinners, because he's a just God, because he's a holy God, he must still punish the sin. He must still punish. And then instead of punishing us with it, he punishes himself. He punishes himself for your pride, your arrogance, your stealing, everything. Your doubt, your faithlessness. Your greed, every little Every sin, he himself takes it and pun he punishes himself. And then he's buried. And three days later, he rises. Victory over sin and death. And he ascends, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on your behalf and on my behalf. This is cause for rejoicing, brothers and sisters. So what does Paul do? He goes back to speaking. He gets a second wind. It happens, trust me. I lived in Africa for two years. It happens. And it goes for a while. It says till daybreak. 
You know, I want to change that sermon summary a little bit. What did I say earlier? A transformed believer preaches a transforming gospel. Let's tweak that. Let's tweak that together. I want to say a transformed believer passionately preaches a transforming gospel. A transformed believer urgently preaches a transforming gospel. A a transformed believer zealously preaches a transforming gospel. Because we cannot just stay like Paul. Paul could not just stay and be like, I guess we're done for the night. No. He needed to go more. And he did not waste the time that he was given. He knew he had a short amount of time with his people that he was leaving in the morning. And he said, you know what? We're back on. And he took every opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a dead world, to a lost world. You know, we should not waste the time that we have with others around us. I praise God. I praise God as I look back on my life. I can, it's easy like now. Now I can look back and see the grace of God throughout my life. I could see the grace of God throughout my life when, when individuals would share the gospel with me, and I didn't realize they were really sharing the gospel with me. You know, I, I could think of my, my elementary school friend, Michael McNeil. McNeil and I, we spent a lot of time together. We hung out together. We got a lot of trouble together, so much so, we were at Haynes. They wouldn't call my parents. They'd call Mama McNeil. And so Mama would come and yell at us, we got in trouble. And so I remember going to their house, and I'd, I'd go to their house, and we'd be sitting on the couch, and it had plastic on it. I'd sit there, and she would start telling me the gospel. She's like, Jimmy, God loves you. God loves you. And Michael would just say, Mom, you know, Jimmy doesn't want to hear this. And she'd slap him and say, yes, he does. He needs to hear it. And so I'm just thinking back, like, there was someone that loved me and cared for me that would just share the gospel with me at a young age. And I think of, of my first, my mentor, like my first mentor, the first youth pastor that really came alongside me, Jeff, and he just, he would just sit there and I would be argumentative and I would be angry and I would, I would just, just be such a rude teenager. And he would just patiently and lovingly come alongside me and just share the gospel with me. Jimmy, this is the truth of the word of God. Hear it, believe it, receive it. And I think of all these people that have came into my life that God has used to share the gospel with me. And then I think we should not be wasting the time that we have with others. Who are those people in our lives that are lying dead like Eutychus? Dead in their sins, no hope, no chance for life other than the power of God resurrecting them. Who in our lives needs to hear Because we understand, yes, we believe that it's only the Spirit of God that changes hearts, but the Lord uses us as we proclaim God's word indiscriminately to everybody, and the Holy Spirit does its work from there. Who in our lives do we need to be sharing the gospel with? The truth of it, of it, uh, the truth of salvation with, so that they themselves can have this joy of salvation in their own lives, that they could realize it, that they could know it that they could believe it and embrace it, that they may come to the saving faith of who God is. And we need to be doing this passionately and urgently because judgment is coming. Hell is real. Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Who do you know that's on, on pace? And our love for, uh, for our love for them should compel us to want to share with them the truth of the gospel, the truth of this good news. And we think, man, I'm not in the right space. I'm, I'm not a really strong believer. I, I've not been trained. We, we come up with a million excuses. Not a million, I'm exaggerating. We come up with lots of excuses as to why we don't do it. The time's not right. Well, the harvest is ready. Jesus says in John 4, do not say there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Open your eyes. Look around you. We have family, friends, neighbors, colleagues who need this gospel because a a transformed believer preaches a transforming gospel to a lost world. So I want to commend to you, brothers and sisters, remember your salvation. Remember the joy of your salvation. Remember the need that you had for this salvation. And go out and preach this transforming gospel that has transformed you. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for just your gospel and your good news. I, I praise you for your truth. And I praise you for the power in that, how powerful you have worked just in my life and in those around me. Where some of us just despised you, we were just enemies of you, we just didn't want to do, we didn't want to have anything to do with you. And yet, you still loved us. And that your spirit changed us. Father, I want to pray for for those around us who are dead, for those around us that that need to hear the good news of salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a boldness and urgency, a zeal to proclaim your good news to a lost world. That this gospel that has transformed us, we would proclaim so that they themselves can be transformed. We pray this all in your name. Amen.